You're listening to the Necromaniacs Podcast. Hello, everyone. It's that time of week again. Another action packed episode of the Necromaniacs Podcast. How's everyone doing? How are you doing, Mike? I am well. Uh, it has been it's been quite a week. We're we're getting close to Thanksgiving. It's uh, it's uh, we're taping this on the, the Monday before Thanksgiving, and uh, yeah, I, I could use a little bit of a break, I guess. You know, it's been a little been a little wild in the in the old personal and uh, job home front. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's been a real grind on my end too, man. Just uh, I'm very busy, um, working a lot of hours. And uh, I'm kind of fried, I got to be honest with you, man. And I'm looking forward to having a few days off and uh, eating and sleeping and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, <laughs> this year, as we as we all know, this year's Thanksgiving is a bit different. And, I mean, I'm basically just going to be hanging out with my girl, and it's going to be me and her eating and, and drinking and, you know, watching cool stuff and, and having a good time. And, and that's Thanksgiving this year. I mean, last year was with, you know, more family and, and totally different vibe. But uh, we got to play the cards we're dealt this year with uh, the virus. And, you know, it kind of sucks. But hopefully this is the first and last Thanksgiving that will be so drastically different. Right, dude, I, I hope so. <laughs> that's all mm-hmm. I could say, you know. Yeah. Knock on freaking wood. God. Yeah. But um before we go further, we would like to give a little shout out to our uh, sponsor, uh, Generation Records. That's right. Open since 1992, Generation Records specializes in punk, hardcore, metal, hard rock, and soundtracks. They've got records, CDs, tapes, T-shirts, and posters. Uh, they specialized in new and used vinyl, and they pay top quality, top dollar. <laughs> For quality uh, used vinyl records, uh, I was talking to Mark earlier today, actually, and they're gearing up for Record Store Day. So if you're in New York City, uh, go to Generation for Record Store Day, which is uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And if you can't make it, then Small Business Saturday is this Saturday. So, you know, if you're a New Yorker, go check them out there. They are located uh, in the village at 210 Thompson Street. Uh, if you're local and uh, you can check them out online at generationrecords.com where it links to their big cartel and their discogs page. You know, we're, uh, we're winding down the end of the years coming up, man. And uh, uh, I think we're going to be doing another three-way episode where Mm -hmm. we we talk about our top five of the year. So I'm real excited for that. Yeah, that should be cool. I mean, (laughs) I can tell you, it hasn't been a year chock full of new horror movies that I have watched, but I definitely have watched at least five. So <laughs> I'll, I'll have a, I'll have a five list, but it's been a weird year. Now, I mean, obviously on the theatrical front, uh, there was no theatrical front pretty much, uh, but there have been some, some great stuff released, you know, direct to streaming and, you know, stuff that hit right pre-pandemic, uh, some stuff actually did make it to the, the indie circuit and some theaters. So 
yeah, we'll we'll have a nice discussion soon. I think like uh, probably three out of the five movies that I'm going to talk about on my list are probably going to enter into my all-time favorite list of, uh, mm -hmm. of horror films. So I'm I'm, ex I'm excited. That's really cool. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, I, 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 lately I've, I've been watching older stuff and, and more offbeat stuff. And tonight we're going to do a bit bit of an offbeat film once again because uh, the Dark Room got a really nice uh, response, by the way. Thank you guys for that. Uh, the Black Room, I'm sorry, not the Dark Room. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know what? You, you find horror where you can find it, whether it be uh, 50 years old uh, or 10 years old or today. Before we get going, you want to just uh, run down some stuff we've been watching and reading and all that kind of nice stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lately, I've been watching two different things on HBO that I'm really enjoying. Uh, one is a new docuseries called Murder on Middle Beach about this murder that took place about just under a decade ago, actually 2010, in Connecticut of this mother. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, the second episode aired last night. If you're a, a true crime fan, um, this is really interesting. It is directed by the woman's son, who's a young guy, and they never caught the killer. So it's really weird that You've got the director of the documentary is the suff is like the long suffering son of, of the victim. So that's Damn. Kind of I think I might check that out after we're done tonight, man. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Murder on Middle Beach. Um, and another uh, thing I've been watching on HBO, not horror, but definitely a, a, a thriller, is uh, The Undoing with Nicole Kidman. Uh, it's really good. I mean, Nicole Kidman is probably one of my favorite mainstream female actresses, uh, honestly. Uh, I think I really kind of fell in love with her 20 years ago with Eyes Wide Shut, to be honest, um, and have seen so many things that she's done since. Um, I think I've got a bit of a shine for her, Mike. Sure. Um, yes, sure. And uh, But this is really cool. Uh, it's, it's, it's different. It's like, yeah, I mean, you're about four or five episodes in, and I have no idea who the killer is. Don't want to say too much about it, but uh, yeah, the undoing. It takes place in Manhattan too, so it's kind of cool, you know, shot on location. Uh, looks like they did it literally at the tail end of last year, beginning of this year, because it's it's in the winter and you know, uh, definitely shot right before COVID kicked in. But it's uh, yeah, really cool. The undoing. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that out for sure, man. It sounds uh, mm -hmm. sounds interesting. Uh, cool. Yeah, so I want to shout out Matt. I gave him a shout out on uh, Everything Went Black as well, but for uh, you guys who don't listen to that, he's a, he turned me on to a new podcast called The King Cast. And um, if you're a fan of Stephen King, and most likely you are at least uh, a passing fan of that guy, mm -hmm. this is for you, man. It's like two guys talk about, they have guests, they have celebrity guests, like Thomas Jean was a guest, for example, uh, Brian Fuller. Of uh, the guy who did um, uh, Hannibal, you know the TV series, oh, and they they talk about the various film adaptions of Stephen King's books and short stories. Very cool. Very very interesting. Brian Fuller did an awesome episode uh, covering Salem's Lot, and uh, it was probably one of my, him his and the Thomas Jane episode are probably my two favorite episodes that I've listened to so far. 
And oh, um, they have Jane on. That's really cool. I like him a lot, man. Yeah, He's man. fucking awesome. Hell yeah. And uh, I've been I've been binging those episodes, and um, as a result of that, I tried to check out Castle Rock on Hulu, and I'm not sure how um, I feel about that. I'm not sure if I'm I gotta be honest, Mike. I never even told you I checked it out too. I think I liked the the first few, and it just hit this level of like, did they just ruin what a good like? It started what like it started out good, and then I felt like something happened, and it just went off the rails. And I and I trudged along a little more, and I went, no, this is terrible. This is not good. So. Yeah, I don't. I wasn't too into Castle Rock. Got to be honest. That's a bummer, man, because it's such a great premise if you think about it. You know, it's, it is. It's the premise of this whole thing is that it's an extended universe that incorporates all of Stephen King's different characters, and you know, it takes mm -hmm. place around Castle Rock up in Maine. And but uh, yeah, I I don't. I feel like it just kind of like disintegrates after a while. You like watch it, and then suddenly you're like. I'm totally not interested in anything that's going on in the show. Yes, it reminds me of one of the Neil Gaiman adaptations that did pretty much the same exact thing. It had a really good start and good first season. And of course, the name, it's escaping me a little bit here. I may have to, to, to look it up. And I was just like, oh my God, this isn't good at all. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, so sometimes these things happen. Oh, American Gods. Oh, yeah. American yeah. book is fucking awesome, okay? And, like, season one of the show I thought was fucking awesome. And then it just went off book. It went off the rails, and it was just terrible. And then I, I never went back, and I hate when that happens. And it, I am so afraid of Sandman suffering some kind of strange fate for Netflix uh, because that's coming out, I don't know if it's late 2021 or whatever but in 2021 uh neil game and sandman's coming out on netflix and that's like one of my favorite things ever so i'm really kind of uh crossing my fingers that that is going to be a home run number one i'm really looking forward to that mm. i am really really excited about sandman and number, yeah. number two i actually like the american guides uh series i watched the first two seasons of it i thought it was pretty uh -huh. good. yeah I thought something happened in season two where it just got very different. And I, I don't know, like they added a bunch of non-book stuff. And I don't know. I just I have just really good memories of the book, I think. And I don't know. I think I'm more of a stickler to that. But um, aside from uh, the, the viewing front, on the reading front, because I know we do like to talk about uh, books here at the podcast, I just finished uh, a very large book about the Halloween franchise called Taking Shape. Uh, I got it right before Halloween, and it's it's pretty hefty. Uh, it's called Taking Shape by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins, uh, developing Halloween from script to screen. Uh, and it's every movie. It's uh, it's the 78 original all the way up to the uh, 2018 movie. So it's actually a pretty cool book. That's cool. And aside from that, I finally got – uh, Blood, Fire, Death, the Swedish oh, metal yeah. Good one. It, it took me a while to get it. Uh, definitely going to finally start reading that. And then I also got the updated volume of Choosing Death uh, by Albert Murdrian. Uh I have the original book. I bought that book the, the moment it came out, the, the old uh, soft cover back in the day. It was over, I don't know, 14 years ago. 
but I never bought the revised edition with the cooler cover and the extra chapters. So I'm going to, going to dive into that. Yeah, that's a good book, man. I should probably check out the revised, the new, the new version of it, the abridged or whatever you want to call it, updated version. Yeah, yeah, it's got a, a bunch of extra stuff in it, and it's you know thicker. It reminds me of when uh, the the first Lords of Chaos came out, and I bought that, and then years later there was the revised edition of that as well. Um, so yeah, my my metal book collection is quite big, I guess. I'm sure your I know yours is too. Yeah, yeah, I um. I, I just picked up a bunch. Um, Maximum Overdrive is, uh, you know, or uh, it's like uh, ACDC, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, document of their early career. Oh, that, nice. That's uh, Jay Bennett recommended that one, and uh, I haven't started it yet. I, I just I'm I'm reading a book by Adam Neville right now called Weird, W I R D. Hmm. It's short. <laughs> it's like a hundred pages or something like that. But it's um, it's really just a collection of these like expositions these like weird sketches of there's like no it's there's no people in it there's no dialogue it's just descri <laughs> descriptions of these fucking creepy landscapes and um very interesting man i mean adam neville is quickly becoming one of my favorite writers i fucking love all of his work that i've read so far yeah i gotta check out more of his stuff uh, i'm not not 100 percent familiar with his work so there's a ton that's really good, man. His most recent book, The Reddening, excellent, mm -hmm. excellent book. You know, uh, it covers it all, man. It has like a cosmic horror vibe. It's got like, you know, this kind of um, very intense. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a page turner. All of his books are page turners. Like you're fucking bang out like a hundred pages in a sitting. It's like so compelling. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Awesome, man. I'd yeah. like to hear. It. The one, the, the one last thing I was um, I checked out, and I don't know if you saw this, but the Leap of Faith, the William Friedkin on The Exorcist. Yes, I have to watch that. I'm going to watch it this week, definitely. <clears throat> yeah, it's on Shudder. Really cool documentary. Uh, Friedkin's awesome on camera. And, you know, The Exorcist is just a classic movie, you know, just as a film. <laughs> Forget about being a horror film. It's just a great film. It's, it's my number two. It's my number two. Shining is my number one. Exorcist is my number two, and Halloween's my number three. So these are these are very important movies in my life, Mike. So I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah. So that brings us to us to tonight's movie, and yes, uh, it's got two titles, and I'll, I'll <laughs> let I'll let you take it from here, Mike. All right. Um, you know, here here at the Old Necromaniacs podcast, uh, we've covered all different types of stuff. And, you know, uh, the last time it was a Mike and Mike show about two weeks ago, we we, we talked about a movie uh, called The Black Room, which was unfamiliar to a lot of people. And then some people remembered it or had hazy memories of it when they were a kid. And, um, you know, tonight we're kind of doing something somewhat somewhat similar, uh, only this movie is a bit more definitely more available. Uh, it's the 1981 film. Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, uh, also known as, um, what do you call it? Night Warning. <laughs> yes, Night Warning in 1983. Um, now, the thing is, if, if, you're, if you're a youngster listening, like, back in the day, movies had, you know, these small regional releases, and sometimes if 
it didn't work. Like if the movie was kind of a bomb, it would get kind of reconfigured later on with a different name to see if that name would kind of go better. And that's would happen a lot, actually. I mean, it's kind of absurd to think of it now because I mean, so much goes into movies now and, and on the indie circuit, people that like to have, you know, their ownership of their movies and, and a title is so important. But back in the day, I feel like it just things just weren't really like that. I mean, the, the movie world was just a very different place. Uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker came out on November 20th, 1981 in, in a, a couple, just a couple of cities um, in Oregon, um, uh, in Portland, Oregon and Salem and Corvallis. But that's really about it, which is really kind of strange. Uh, it did manage to have a, a movie tie-in novel that was released on December 1st, 1981, with the same name, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Um, the theatrical expanded a bit earlier in 1982 to just a few places as well, like St. Louis, and it hit uh, Canada, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. But that's about it, though. Until January 1983, the movie comes out again with a cooler, I think, a better title, my yeah. honest. Yeah, definitely. Warning. Night Warning is a fucking, I mean, who doesn't want to see Night Warning? Night Warning sounds awesome. Night Warning sounds like a band that's going to be playing St. Vitus sometime next year. I mean, fuck, right? <laughs> that's right, um, yeah. It totally does. Uh, but Night Warning came out in January 1983. In California, in just San Francisco and Santa Cruz, and it came out in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's it. <laughs> it's just well, so strange, right? Like they could never things. pull something like that off these days, obviously, because you know, back back in the murky past when there was no internet. Like nowadays, a movie comes out, you look on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. There's trailers everywhere. There's people writing in their blogs about it. There's podcasts talking about it. But back then, it's like you. I'm trying to remember how you even how I even found out about movies. I mean, aside from video, going to a video store, like some of the movies that I ended up, you know, you and I both ended up gravitating to. You, you, they, they kind of they came out almost like unnoticed in some ways. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. And I think the dawn of the internet age. Uh, has just breathed life into so many things and so many cool oddities and, and strange movies. Um, by the end of 1983, though, if you had cable, this movie aired as Night Warning on the movie channel, which is interesting. And then by 1985, it hit home video under the HBO home video banner, which is also very interesting. So this movie had some cable legs and it had some really uh, strong home video legs. Uh, it was deemed a video nasty uh, in England. All, all the best movies, by the way, were yeah. deemed video nasty and were pretty much barred in England. Um, you know, this movie gets a bit bonkers towards the end, so I could see why the, the British thought it was nasty. Um, as far as where you can see it now, you know, just to kind of get it out there, is, uh, is Code Red, the independent... Uh, uh, home video company uh, actually managed to get this out, out of obscurity uh, onto DVD in 2014, and that sold out. They did kind of a limited run of it. And then by 2017, uh, they put it out as a limited run Blu-ray, uh, which features a 2K scan of the original elements, and supposedly it looks fucking awesome. 
Uh, you can still get this. It's it's still out there. Uh, it costs about 30 bucks, though, because it's like a deluxe, you know, limited deal. And uh, I'll tell you right at the start of the podcast, it's worth 30 bucks. Uh, this is this is quite a little film. <laughs> um, now, let's get to the plot, shall we? Well, let's mention that also the cast mm-hmm. actually has some pretty well-known actors in it. Yes. Um, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, uh, has, uh, Susan Terrell as Shell Roberts, Bo Sevenson as Detective Joe Carlson. Bo Sevenson was, had a really big career in the seventies. Uh, he was in the cult film Walking Tall, yeah, which is a movie Buford, everyone uh, used to think. Buford Pusser. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> who he played. Yeah. Well, Bo Sevenson is... He's just kind of one of those kind of cult kind of dudes, you know? Um, and in this movie, boy, he's, uh, let's just say, he's not very PC. <laughs> he's not very, he's he's very old school. He was in, he's in Walking Tall Part 2. Uh, he's in Inglorious Bastards, the original uh, 1978 Inglorious Bastards. He's just kind of one of those guys that you saw a lot, you know, on screen back in the day kind of a commanding presence. Uh, it stars Jimmy McNichol as Billy Lynch. Jimmy McNichol was kind of a 70s heartthrob dude. And one of the most interesting people in this cast, who went on to be the biggest name in the cast, and a very young Bill Paxton, uh, listed as William Paxton, who stars as Eddie. Uh, we also has uh, Marsha Lewis as Margie, and Julia Duffus as Julie. I'm sorry, Julia Duffy as Julia. Uh, Steve Easton as Coach Tom Landers and Britt Leach as Sergeant Cook. Britt Leach is another kind of guy that you've seen in a shit ton of 70s and 80s TV and films. Um, He, let's see, I I, I just want to shout out a few things he was in because I always remember him. I, I distinctly remember him on like the Brady Bunch. He was in Silent Night, Deadly Night. He plays the dad in Weird Science, by the oh, way. Wow. Okay. He's in West Starfighter. Um, just tons of TV stuff like Fame and Amazing Stories, and Dukes of Hazard and New Heart. Like, just one of those guys. Like, uh, he was on uh, Hill Street Blues. Just tons of shit. Dallas, One Day at a Time. One, another one of those kind of culty actors that you know, if, if you're of a certain age, you know his face. I got to say, Bill Paxton looks exactly the same at whatever age he was in this movie. <laughs> yes. He looks exactly the same throughout his entire life, really. That face, yeah. He always had the same face. And the voice, right? Yep. He has that same voice. It's unmistakable. Like, that kind of, I don't know, was it a draw? Like, he had, like, this kind of interesting voice, Bill Paxton. I mean, I, I guess it was because of where he was from, you know. Where was yeah. Bill Paxton? I want to say he was from Texas, possibly. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, I mean, uh, you know, where was, yeah, Fort Worth, Texas. Exactly. He had that, he definitely carried the Texas with him wherever he went, I would say, all the time. Um, but yeah, I think for the rest of this podcast, I want to refer to this movie as Night Warning. Yeah. Because Baker is a goddamn mouthful, even though that is what it's available on on Blu-ray. What do you think? Night Warning's a stronger title, for sure. Yes, it is. 
Just uh, um, real quick about uh, Jimmy McNichol. That's uh, Christy McNichol's brother. Yes, that's right. Christy McNichol was another really big 70s to about mid-80s TV and film star. Um, she was in uh, famously in Little, Little Darlings with Tatum O'Neill. That was like a big movie, Mike. Remember? Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. That was huge. It was and, like uh, a summer movie. And she was in Family, the TV show. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I've ever actually seen Family, but I remember uh, seeing commercials for it when I was young. Yeah, I mean, and it's the funny thing about this movie, about how it relates to the black room, it's that both movies were shot like in early 1981, both in California. And what they have in common is that they're both these kind of movies totally of their time, you know? Um Movies that probably would never get get made now with the same script and premise, right? No, they, it could never be made now. I mean, just in uh, <laughs> in this film, you got incest, you got homophobia, mm-hmm. uh, you got murder, you got all these like really uh, taboo um, things that are. I mean, murder. I mean, there's murder films these days, but mainly the incest and the rampant homophobia and the yeah. The demonization of of gay men in this movie too is like that could that would never fly. Even if like I mean, they don't paint the characters in a positive light that are homophobic, but just the intensity that uh, yeah. that Bo Svensson's uh, character expresses his homophobia would never be tolerated these days. Let's just say everybody he drops the f bomb eight hundred times throughout the movie. But I'll say this. I mean, how many movies from 1981 did just the same, Mike? Quite a few. I mean, every comedy did, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you know, just, you, your history of the worlds. And, and you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it was it was a term used, unfortunately, all the time back then. Um, you know, it's it. But the thing is, though, the interesting thing about this movie, I mean, I will get into is that uh, the, the gay character in the movie is portrayed in a way that prior to this movie in a lot of like movies and horror movies was not in such a positive light. And that's why this movie has actually gotten some accolades for that, for the portrayal of, of a male gay character as, as in essence, one of the heroes of the film. Right. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. He's one of the stronger characters and he's probably a more like realistic midline gay person you know right exactly Exactly. Uh he's not some like you know leather clad you know s&m gay guy like in cruising or or some super flamboyant yeah you know flamboyant 81 that's what was going on in the movie like you know i'm saying it wasn't a lot of positive you know role model portrayals of the gay lifestyle happening in the late seventies, early eighties in, in, especially in a horror film. Yeah. For um, sure. This movie has that and, and we'll get into that a bit. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an exploitation horror film directed by William Asher, starring Susan Terrell, Jimmy McNichol, Julia Duffy, and Bo Sevenson. Um, it's framed It's framed as a contemporary Oedipus tale as the plot focuses on a teenager raised by his neurotic aunt finds himself at the center of a murder investigation after she stabs a man to death in their house, which he witnesses. 
Um, and well, let's just say the ant is extremely sexually repressed and is completely sexually attracted to her, her, her nephew to the point of many uncomfortable scenes. Uh, however, the, the policeman, played by Bo Sevenson, uh, believes that this was some type of strange love triangle to murder. <laughs> believes that uh, <laughs> Jimmy McNichol's character, Billy Lynch, is the one responsible for the murder. Um, just right on, I mean, look, when I first heard about this film, just hearing the first, you know, paragraphs worth of, of description of the movie, I was like, I need to see this movie immediately. <laughs> you know? Well, let me ask you a question. How did you find out about this film, number one? Because I, I remember one night you texted me and you're like, we got to yeah. do this. And you sent me a link. And I, I like watched it that night that you sent me this. <laughs> just and, based on the description. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, I got nothing going on tonight. Let me watch this this movie. And um, how, so how'd you find out about this film? All right, here's the thing. It, a, it probably goes back to a mix of um, a, a message board I used to be on called DVD Maniacs back in the day, uh, which was fucking great. I actually made friendships with people that I still have today that carries on to like Facebook uh, that, that I met, uh, that I made on this board, a bunch of these people I've met in person. And they used to talk about night warning and it was very hard to come by. It was not on YouTube yet. Okay. Flash forward, I don't know, maybe a few months ago and everyone's talking about, you know, the, the, the Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker Blu-ray, and it's always, oh, it, can you still get it? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay, there's that movie again. You know what I'm saying? And then uh, there was a big thread about it on, on one of the, the horror exploitation groups. And then I think I asked somebody, like, you know, is this streaming anywhere? And then this girl replies, oh, it's it's only streaming on YouTube as Night Warning. And she sent it to me, I'm like, oh, shit, awesome. And this was when I wasn't 100% sure if I could still buy it or not, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to blind buy it. Really, I was, you know, I wanted to actually watch it. But the good thing about watching this one uh, on YouTube as opposed to watching the Black Room is that it looks a lot better, right? Yeah, definitely. The uh, quality, the picture quality is a lot better. Right. So for a second episode, I'm eating my my YouTube words about watching movies. I think I'm never ever going to tell a person not to watch a movie on YouTube again, because I guarantee you there's quite a few gems on there that have been lost to time. And this is one of those movies that is not available on any streaming services. You can only either buy the Blu-ray or watch it on YouTube. So yeah, it goes back a while ago to like a, a, a an old memory of the, the, the DVD maniac message board. And then a, a newer experience on one of the newer Facebook groups. So I tell you, man, it's, it's great how you could just find these <laughs> fucking ace weird movies, you know, just by chance, you know? Wow. So, so you were just like sitting around one night and just popped into your head. <laughs> no, well, it was, was seeing the thread, seeing, seeing the thread, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago. Like I, I actually like screenshotted an image of the movie poster on my phone. I have a bunch of weird screenshots and shit in my phone to remind me of things and this was sitting there actually ah, okay all right yeah so and then when it, it, the discussion came up again in a new thread i was like oh fuck now i'm gonna just finally gonna fucking watch this movie and then that's when i i, I told you about it but uh 
the gestation period does not go back to being a 12 year old at a video store. It only really goes back to, you know, the, the, the O's on, on a message board. <laughs> okay. I got it now. All right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is, uh, it was independent film, obviously, uh, financed by the independent Royal American pictures. The film was shot in Los Angeles in 1981. Uh, director Michael Miller was originally hired to direct. And here's the funny thing. Uh, one director filmed that whole opening sequence, that murder sequence, the, uh, the, 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 the truck kind of, you know, the car with the truck sequence yeah. where uh, the His two parents. people are killed. And then the rest of the film uh, w w was shot by uh, Jan DeBont. It was kind of, kind of interesting little uh, switch up there uh, before being fired and then replaced again by uh, director William Asher. So weird. Uh, who he shot the rest of the film along with Robbie uh, Greenberg. Um, I told talked a little bit about how it was kind of like a, a spaced out release, this movie, which is interesting. However, even though it wasn't seen by a, a ton of people, in 1982, it actually was, was nominated by the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy for like best horror film that year. Um, so, you know... I guess the, the, the right people got to see it. And that probably laid the groundwork for the bigger release under the second name, right? I would think so. You know, despite the fact that it didn't, you know, make, sell a lot of tickets, the fact that it got mm -hmm. that little bump probably sparked some interest in yeah. recutting it, re-releasing it and all that. Right, right. Now, hopefully, you know, if, if I buy the Blu-ray and I watch all the interviews, maybe it talks a bit about the, about the, the name change. Because I wasn't really get able to find a shit ton of information as to why uh, they changed the name and, and what was kind of behind that. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, Billy Lynch, uh, played by Jimmy McNichols, a high school senior, and he lives with his, uh, you know, overprotective aunt, to say the least, overprotective, uh, since he was a baby. Uh, in the beginning, we see what appeared to be his parents dying of a very strange car accident. And one of the coolest things about this movie is that it has that beginning, that like very typical late seventies, early eighties, creepy close up, right. Of the mother's face holding the baby and, and the, you know, right. Like, you know what I'm talking about? It has yeah. like this right, right out of the gate. I knew I was going to fucking love this movie, <laughs> you know, from like that opening murder scene on, I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be a good movie. Uh, so Billy's a really good basketball player uh, at his high school. You know, he's a senior and uh, he, he he might be getting a scholarship for the University of Denver. And of course, when he tells his aunt, she hates the idea because that'll take him away from her. And it's like, oh, God, um, <laughs> she does not do a very good job, Aunt Cheryl, of like, you know, I don't know, downplaying her feelings for him. But he's such like a moron. He has like no idea that his aunt is a total pervert. Am I crazy? Yeah, I mean, the thing about it too, I mean, and once again, I'm trying to get into the mind of uh, of Billy. I mean, growing up like that with an inappropriate aunt, you know, he probably thinks it's normal. You know, mm. like yeah. she's looking at him shirtless and, you know, and uh, touching him inappropriately. and <laughs> Yeah, the way she wakes him up in bed. Yeah. 
It's like it's like how your girl would wake you up in bed. It's not <laughs> no mom or aunt has ever woken no, anybody. Hell no. Nor would I want anyone <laughs> in my family to fucking come anywhere near me like that, honestly. But um once, once again, this movie, similar to the Black Room, could easily have been shot as a porn, pornographic movie too. <laughs> so many threads, Mike. They really do. Yeah, totally. And and it's it's that's why, you know, listeners, we're bringing you the goods here. We're not talking about the new Scream movie coming out. Nah, man. we're talking about the real nitty gritty here, folks. <laughs> Stuff, the, the real deal horror films. But uh, you know, it's Billy's birthday. It's his seven. It's his seventeenth birthday, and uh, he's got like this this uh, photographer chick at the school that he's kind of you know who likes him a lot, and he kind of likes, and you know they haven't really taken. The, the next big step in their relationship just yet, because I think she, I guess she's a little older than him and he's, you know, just only 16 going on 17. Um, a little later in the movie, uh, you know, it, it, she, Aunt Cheryl kind of changes her mind about the, the scholarship. And he asks Billy to stop by the television repair shop to tell the shop technician, Mr. Phil Brody to come back and look at the set. Okay. Look at the TV set. Is a very strange scene happens. It kind of it, it's like a it's a fast cut to the guy working on the TV, right? This Bill Brody character, and and the aunt just comes out in like a dress, and she grabs her crotch and she like pulls her shirt down, and she just wants to bang the the the, the TV repairman, and he's like, nope. He like pushes her out of the way. He's like super not into it, right? He's like. That wants nothing to do with it, and he says something that, if you're really paying attention, you kind of understand why he wants nothing to do with it. Uh, he is a gay man, but I feel like that if you're not really, if you don't know the plot of the movie and you're not super paying attention, you might miss this one little line that he says, where he's just like, you know, I don't know if it's like I can't remember if it's like you're barking up the wrong tree or something like that. Like yeah, something along those something, lines. Yeah, right. He says something fairly specific okay well cheryl does not take too kindly to that uh they have a little scuffle and she butchers him like cuts him up really bad it's you know and this is as billy is coming home and billy witnesses his crazy pervert aunt stabbing a dude to death in the kitchen and this it just it's a really fucking bonkers scene because she's blood all over and she's wiping blood on her she's wiping blood on billy and billy's covered in blood there's blood everywhere really brutal scene huh mike and this is on his birthday too <laughs> on his birthday and then moments later her friend and her friend's husband are knocking at the door and they actually i for some reason i was like okay uh billy's gonna go to the door and tell them that you know the party's canceled it's like no they walk in on him and they see the dead body and they see the blood everywhere that was a really kind of interesting scene too. I thought. I think it, it like it went kind of a different way than I thought it was going to go. You know. Yeah, I mean, it went into the realm of uh, of just. Uh, well, the first thing I was thinking about is the aunt and like, not you know, she's not unattractive. You know what I'm trying no. to say? Like I think no, uh, no. you know they they play her up to be a certain frumpy way, but. When she's all dolled up for the TV repairman, she actually looks pretty good, man. You know, and it just 
her damn luck that he's not into women. And I think that she could have had herself a nice little time if a different type of dude showed up instead of this guy. Yes. Oh, uh, interesting thing about uh, this actress, uh, Susan Terrell, who played her. Uh, she did the voice in Fire and Ice of Juliana, Ralph Bashi's Fire and Ice. Oh, wow. Damn. All right. I love that. I didn't realize that was her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been in a, a, a she was in Big Top Pee Wee as Midge Montana. Huh. Uh, she was in the movie Cry Baby. Uh, yeah, she's been in a bunch of ah, stuff. You know what, man? She has like a John Waters kind of vibe about her. You know what I mean? Yes, she does. Yeah, that that's that's that makes sense to me now. Yeah. Um, did a lot of stuff in the 70s. I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, Loose Shoes, Racket. Uh, she's in the movie Forbidden Zone. Yeah, see? Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she also was in Powder, that movie Powder. Ah, all right. And, uh, and she has a small role in Poison Ivy, The Seduction. Great, great 90s, uh, you know, movie. <laughs> but, yeah, she's not, she's an attractive woman, and she throughout the movie her, her her looks get very like kind of dark and and she just I, you know she the the madness kicks in let's just say yeah as the movie goes on she goes through a transformation um, yes yeah she totally does now uh the cops come uh, and you know and she claims that she was it was an attempted rape and she she stabbed the dude to death because it was, you know, an attempted rape. That's what she tells Joe Carlson, played by Bo Sevenson, who's a bigoted police detective, uh, who's a former Marine and Purple Heart recipient. But he is very skeptical of Cheryl and the entire, you know, alleged rape attempt. Uh, he discovers that Phil Brody was gay and in a same-sex relationship with Billy's basketball coach, Tom, who we did meet briefly earlier on in the film. Now, because of this, the brilliant, uh, quote-unquote, Joe Carlson decides that uh, Billy was the murderer because it was a love triangle fight between him, uh, the, the TV repair guy, Phil Brody, and the basketball coach. How that, like, really? <laughs> that was... That's, what he, that's his takeaway here? <laughs> and that the Aunt Cheryl was covering for Billy? Really? Yeah. Come on. And you're like a, a detective? Yeah, there was like <laughs> literally no proof. And the only reason why he would have jumped to conclusions like that is he might, I mean, and they don't really go into this in the film, but like that's, I feel like that would have been like um, like a plot string they could have mm. used to see that he was like some kind of repressed like homosexuality that's like, Right. Like that maybe all he thinks about is his dick, you know, and he's like oh, everything yeah. everything in his mind is about like men and dicks. And that's why I he just assumed I'm... that Billy was gay and there was a love triangle between those three guys. Yeah, not for nothing. Now that you say that, yeah, my takeaway now is that the detective Carlson was himself gay. Yeah. Um because this guy has a very burning hatred of gay people. And a lot of times when you have a very burning hatred of anything, you love that thing. So, you know, more often than not. Um, but, yeah, he immediately accuses Billy of being gay, throws the F-bomb at him 800 times. Um, 
And, you know, it's, you know, a lot of uncomfortable dialogue and some scenes. He forces the poor coach who, who, again, I will say one of the only good people in this film, technically, along with Billy, um, <laughs> he forces the coach to quit the basketball team after the murder because he thinks, you know, that it was all due to this love triangle. I mean, that was like so messed up, you know? I thought that was really fucking shitty. But probably not a probably typical of the shit that might have been going on back then. You know what I'm saying? Like in this time period, you know, um, who knows? Um, but the thing is, there is another police. Uh, uh, Britt Leach, uh, who plays Sergeant Cook. Sergeant Cook doesn't believe this at all. He is immediately skeptical of Cheryl. And he's right because Cheryl is guilty as sin. He's obviously the more intelligent policeman, uh, but he's the sergeant and he's, you know, he, he's not as nearly a, an asshole like the Bo Severson character is, uh, but he's kind of keeping his, his tabs on the ant while uh, Detective Carson is keeping his tabs on Billy and the basketball coach and just basically all the wrong cues, right? Also, uh, another scene that's like uh, the creepy Detective Carlson by, uh, you know, Bo Svensson's character. He braces up Billy's girlfriend, and he's like, so, you know, you guys uh, you guys, you guys have sex? You know, he's yeah. like, he's got this what poor girl, mean? like, like cornered outside. He's trying to make her, force her <laughs> to tell him whether or not they have sex. And she's like, it's none of your business. And it's just, like, so creepy, man. And yeah, and then, then there's, a, there's a scene in the police precinct where he's got uh, a Mexican guy, or uh, you know, uh, I'm not even entirely sure of what Latin descent the man is, and he's act, he's like, you know, talking Spanish to him with like a gun to his head at the police station. He's so fucked up, like it's so like you know, old school horrible cop shit going on, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely some some uh, some bad behavior, bad behavior there. A lot of police. Listeners, it was just a lot of bad behavior in 1981, and you have to watch these movies with that through that lens, and it, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, uh, at some point in the film, you know, Cheryl is is really kind of unraveling uh, post murder, and you know, it, it can't really keep her desires for Billy in check much longer. Let's just say. Um, she drugged Billy right before his big basketball game for his scholarship tryout. Can you fucking believe that? Because she doesn't want him to leave so badly, you know? Um, so he screws up that. And so there goes his, any chance of his basketball scholarship. Um, but she does clean out the attic for him so that he can have an apartment space in the house. Of course, since he's going to be going anywhere. Um, and while this is happening, Sergeant Cook is, is kind of casing the house and he's, you know, his suspicions of Cheryl are growing. Um, something of, of note is that uh, Cheryl uh, is kind of talking to this picture of this man and and saying things. And, and I guess we believe it to be an old boyfriend, correct? That's right. In her life. And it doesn't seem like she's had many boyfriends in her life because she's always been trying to bang her nephew for seven years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at one point, yes, she did have a, a boyfriend, it seems, and she's kind of pining for this guy. Um, 
He walks in on Billy and his girlfriend, Julia, having sex, and she gets all pissed off uh, with Billy, okay? Because, you know, she wants to be having sex with Billy, and not Billy's girlfriend, because, of course, that's natural. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she calls her a slut, I think, and yeah, tells her to get out. <laughs> the whole nine yards and, you know, the whole typical thing that a crazy, incestuous aunt would say and do. Um, the thing is, you know, uh, Billy sees the boy, the, the photo, and um, Cheryl actually tells Billy it was one of his mother's old boyfriends, which is interesting when in reality we, we can kind of figure out that no it's one of cheryl's old boyfriends and it's like hmm, okay uh billy has julia stop by the house to distract cheryl so that he can investigate further after he sees the picture and he wants to go through this lockbox of all this shit that his aunt has he finds his birth certificate in this lockbox where he actually sees that as it turns out <laughs> to make things worse Cheryl isn't his aunt. Cheryl is his mother. And, and Craig, the guy in the photo, was his dad. What's interesting here is that she... Now, clearly, at the beginning of the movie, she is the reason for that murder of her sister and her sister's... I believe... Now, it's a little funky to me. Was that Craig in the car yeah. with the sister? That was. That's what I picked up on is that she uh, snipped the brake lines, so that yes. they would have the uh, this accident. And Craig's head was like he was decapitated by this fucking you know like piece of lumber truck that was on a truck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's actually a really sick scene. Yeah. And in true late seventies, early eighties fashion, it is a very exaggerated kind of murder sequence of of the mom after the, the husband is decapitated, like the screams of the car rolling down and yeah. off the you know off the the hill and, and you know like the car exploding it's just like a gruesome death or whatever and they, I thought that was they cool. cut back to the uh decapitation scene too and then like it's like a flashback they, they show it in the beginning and then later on like they cut back to it so you get to see it twice yes so as it turns out i mean she she killed her own sister she killed the father of her, her son. She killed the, the, the TV repairman who didn't want to have sex with her. She's on quite a roll, right? Um, so as uh, Julia is trying to distract her and Billy finds all this out, she knocks Julia in the head with a meat tenderizer. And then Billy comes down the stairs. He can't find her. She manages to drug Billy again with this milk. <laughs> Billy is a moron. All right, let's just say it. Yeah, Billy he's very, is, very naive, very naive guy. Very naive guy. He's not very smart. Maybe too much time on the basketball court. <laughs> yeah. He's not a smart man, uh, smart young man. He gets drugged again. Okay. Initially, I thought Julia was killed. Didn't you? Yeah, it, it seemed like nice she probably see. could have been killed pretty easily, yeah. Yes. It's nice to see that Billy's girlfriend, Julia, is awakened in the secret room in the basement where she then discovers that, see, this movie takes quite a turn now. There was only really one killing, you know, aside from that accident in the beginning, there was just the one murder of the TV repairman. And a lot of this movie kind of plays out as like this kind of dark drama. Now we're going into full horror mode within the last 20 minutes of the film. Would you agree? 
Yeah, it turns into a slasher film at the end, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she's like, uh, you know, uh, psycho, uh, Mrs. Voorhees, you know, esque. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Um, you know, Julie wakes up and sees Craig's mummified corpse and severed head in a jar of formaldehyde. Yeah. That was that was a scene that it just reminded me of a bunch of shit that had come before it in 1981. I mean, you got to remember in the landscape, it's it, that post-Halloween, 78, and then the post-Friday the 13th, those movies went were so popular and made so much money, there was such a rush to rip them off. This movie kind of doesn't rip either one of them off, but it kind of it, – it's it's like a child of those movies – in the killing sense, would you would you agree? Yeah, and, you know, and there's also a nod to Psycho too, a little bit. You know, yeah. there's like the family, like the creepy relationship with the mother and son, and you know, there's like an incest thing. You know, you got the mm-hmm. mummified head. You know, it's like it's like a lot of um, it, it pays homage to all that stuff. You know what I mean? So the the, the neighbor who we saw at the birthday party, Margie. Uh, is growing suspicious after hearing some noises and she arrives on the property and then she's followed uh, by Cheryl who kills her with a machete. She kills her friend with a machete. It's a really sick scene. And uh, like we were saying earlier, Cheryl now looks completely different. She's cut off all of her hair. She had cut it off a little bit earlier on in the film. She just looks horrific now. She doesn't look like a sexy MILF aunt anymore. She looks like a deranged killer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, Sergeant Cook, uh, of course, arrives on the scene, uh, enters the house in search of Julia, who's been actually reported missing by her mother at this point. Um, but, of course, uh, Cheryl chops him up with the machete. She cuts his hands, right? He turns on the light, yeah. and then his hands get cut off. Like, the gore that just, you know, is ramped up and the murders get ramped up. And the movie just gets really intense and even more fun than this very fun movie has already been. Um, then Julie and Cheryl go on yet another chase uh, outside and they fall into a pond and uh, Cheryl knocks Julie unconscious. I mean, that some of it also kind of reminded me a little bit of like Last House on the Left for some reason at this point, like, uh, you know, they had like that pool scene or whatever. Yeah, and I, see I, that. Yeah. I got some of those kind of vibes too. Uh, Billy, amidst all this shit going on, has been unconscious in the attic. He finally fucking wakes up. Um, and Cheryl has put all of his childhood toys around him like a creep that she is. He gets downstairs and calls the police. Cheryl attacks him. This, this is also another really bloody moment between Cheryl and Billy, they're like cutting each other up, right? And like yeah. fucking fighting and killing each other. Um, yeah, I mean, this movie gets full-blown horror now. Um, Carlson finally arrives, of course, uh, where he finds uh, Tom, who uh, the, the basketball coach, who also makes his way there. Um, because Billy made a phone call asking for him to come because he's kind of ran out of people to help him at this point. And, of course, the piece of shit Carson sees Tom there and, you know, Carson blames Billy and Tom for all the crime. He has no idea what has happened. He has no idea that the aunt has gutted everybody, you know, in the fucking house. and She's to blame for everything. He draws his gun on them. <laughs> Despite Julia is, in, Julia is there. She's saying, no, 
Cheryl was responsible for all this. Uh, Tom and Carlson get into a scuffle uh, in which Billy grabs a gun. And then this was, I got to say, man, very shocking moment here. Billy kills Detective Carlson, fucking shoots him up a whole bunch of times in the house. I was really surprised to see that, actually. Really kind of dark moment in the film. So, you know, to save basically his coach's life, you know, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's a I had a feeling Carlson was going to get killed in this movie just because he he had stepped over the line so many times, you know, and and he was such a reprehensible character. And mm. uh just also knowing the trajectory of these types of movies, I felt like at the he was going to end up getting shot up at the end. But like who knew Billy had I, it in him and then But not Billy. Billy I didn't think Billy him. I didn't think Billy was going to kill him. Yeah, right. That was the shock to me. Yeah. The shock to me was that Billy actually did something. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it, it just Billy and his girlfriend are stealth crying. I mean, there's just there's a lot of blood at this point. It's just like a fucking bloody mess everywhere. Um, and as the movie ends, the very interesting moment, it says that the judge doesn't charge Billy because, you know, due to temporary insanity, Billy serves no jail time for murdering people. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, that was, um, it was all done with text. Like they have this rolling text that kind of like gives right. you the falling action of the movie and explains what happens. And I, I, I have a thing against those types of things in movies. Like I hate when they do that. You know? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of of its time though. That's, they, they did that a lot in the seventies and early eighties. Um, but yeah, it's funny you talk about like Psycho. Apparently, uh, the uh, the screenplay writers uh, Stephen Breimer and Boone Collins and Alan J. Gluckman they blended elements of films like Whatever Happened to, to Baby Jane along with the slasher films, and I could see that totally. Um, but apparently, the genesis of the story was based upon uh, Stephen Breimer, one of the co-writers' own curiosity about his biological parents because he was adopted. (laughs) Imagine that's, you know, you're adopted and it's like, hmm, what if my parents were complete lunatics? (laughs) But uh, yeah, this movie is quite a roller coaster ride. Wouldn't you you say? Yeah, definitely was uh, entertaining for sure. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of crazy characters and, and uh, it's funny that, you know um, that that uh, Susan Terrell worked with John Waters because mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a John Waters vibe to this movie. I'm not saying it's like any of his films, but you know, like in John Waters, there's always like crazy shit that goes on. Like there's like you know incest, like creepy stuff between you know younger men and older women, and like mm-hmm. you know gay stuff and you know homosexual activity and homophobia being expressed in a certain way. Um, I feel like um, this is definitely at times, and especially maybe because I, I might even recognize Susan Terrell on some mm-hmm. level, because I've seen a lot of those John Waters films, like uh, Forbidden Zone. You know, I saw that, so maybe I recognize her. And there was like a vibe to that, you know what I mean? Like this mm-hmm. kind of like like outsider vibe to the movie, I guess. And uh, yeah, and I like that about it. 
Yeah, there's there's interesting things about this movie, interesting takeaways. Um, it was written extensively uh, about in the, in the book Horror Films of the 80s, where they talked about how it's it's modeled after Oedipus the King by Sophocles, borrowing the themes of adoption and ancestral yearning from a mother to son. And when uh, Billy eventually murders Cheryl in self-defense, he impales her with a tire iron, which is a phallic symbol. And after her dead body collapses around him in what is seemed to be almost like a sexual position, which is true, by the way, if you yeah. watch the movie closely. Uh, the movie is also an inversion of the final girl. Um, you know, you have like the final guy in a role. I mean, in a, in a way, I, it is almost like it's like an inversion of a final girl. Um He's not only because he's the one who's directly injured by the villains and he survives against the odds and he's a very like attractive, you know, young guy and he's feeding into the unhealthy motivations of those who threaten him within and the desire of the audience watching him outside. So it is kind of interesting, you know, and Julia is the helpful boy is like the reverse helpful boyfriend. You know, it's a total opposite of every other slasher film from around that time, Mike. You know? Yeah, I picked up on that too, and I thought that was very cool about the movie. You know what I mean? It, and and especially something that came out in the you know the early '80s, when um, you know horror films, especially slasher movies, were they were under fire because of oh yeah, check it out, it's just guys with knives like cutting up women and stuff like that. You know, and and um, it wasn't until much later that they actually saw them as like female empowerment because at the end of the film the final girl is the one who actually wins wins out at the end and uh it's cool to see this thing you know inverted the way they did it totally and 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 speaking upon the 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 early portrayal of of homosexuality you know a positive character um on wikipedia it says butcher baker nightmare maker has been noted for being an early film to portray a homosexual male character in in a positive figure featuring actor Tom Landers, uh, not actor, Tom Landers, the character, Billy's gay basketball coach who's subjected to homophobia, who later comes to Billy and Julia's rescue in the final sequence. Actor Steve Easton, who portrayed the character, recalled that the screenplay did not sensationalize the character's sexuality. Uh, He's a gay man, but he's not a pervert. He's just, he just likes men and he has a boyfriend and his boyfriend is murdered. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very like, you know, and of course, he is literally one of the only characters in this film to be an upstanding individual, you know? Yeah, you know, and they, and they could have easily, you know, played his character either for laughs or, or presented it in like this, uh, you know, like this, like I was saying earlier, like this kind of leather clad, you know, mm-hmm. SM, like Rob Halford kind of guy or something, you know what I mean? But they, they just showed him as like a regular guy who, you know, living in a small town who's gay. And, uh, it's like I thought that was like a very, very uh, forward-thinking way of presenting the character, which which makes this movie, you know, pretty cool. Mm, no, totally. Um, that's the thing. Like, it's just a really interesting film, and it's just an. I think it's pretty original. You know, I mean, yeah, towards the end it gets you know slasher movie-ish, but I think on the whole, I mean, the you know. The, the overall, like, script and the plot and premise is really cool. Like, you know, I mean, I, I could I could kind of see this movie, I don't know, maybe not being remade completely. 
I mean, if it got if it was remade, it, it would be really on the indie circuit, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't think it would <laughs> we'd be seeing it in a, in a mainstream no. kind of theater. No, no, definitely not. You know, and I mean, and and uh, you know, like like the the cop character. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Detective Carlson. He's a, he's a bad guy, but yeah. these days, they can't. You know, just with the culture, the cancel culture, like the woke culture being what it is, mm. they would be reluctant to even show the villain as someone who's like blatantly homophobic. And I think that's a real disservice to storytelling, in my opinion. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They would have to literally say, oh, uh, we're going to set this in the 80s because if we set this in the now, uh, someone would come to kill us. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, you know, but that would again, be the only way they could get away with it. Yeah. You know, Is I that mean, if it was 1981? Yeah, but maybe, you know? maybe, yeah, maybe now that we're moving out of the, the MAGA era of our country and like mm. maybe people start calming down a little bit, you know, and we get back to not having uh, characters that are, uh, you know, cookie cutter versions of what people perceive is to be politically correct. So maybe that's the future we have to look forward to, you know, hopefully. I have to say in my, in my nerddom, I'm very curious to read this movie tie in. I'm sure it goes for like $150, the book, but uh, I'm going to do a little digging to see just, you know, see, see how much it is. Like, you know, like the Halloween novel is like $200. I mean, I don't know if this will be much, but yeah. Um, Because all these things usually add, there's usually more in the book. Almost oh, always. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if anyone, uh, the listeners, uh, recalls ever seeing uh, Night Warning on cable or anything. Because I don't remember do you, at all. Do you? No, no. I, I never even heard of this film until you, you texted me the other night. <laughs> okay, cool. But, um, yeah, what do you give our wonderful Night Warning? <laughs> I, I liked it. I didn't mm-hmm. love it. I give it a 3.5. It's definitely worth watching. However, I'm not exactly sure when I'll watch it again, and that's why I give it a 3.5. Okay, 3.5, a little on the lower side. All right, a little bit, a little bit. I'm giving this a four. Uh, it is. I think it is. It is a must see film uh, for listeners of the podcast. I think. It, I think it's in a lot of ways. It's a must see horror film. Um, it is. A, it's got. It's got originality. You know, um, it's got a good story and it's creepy. It, it kind of hits a, a lot of the no, a lot of the notes for me. You know, uh, it's 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 like culty. It's got disturbing elements. It has gore, but it has a good story. The acting a little uneven. I think some people do better than others. Let's be honest. Um, but I just thought it was fun. You know, like it was just like a roller coaster ride. Um I'm definitely giving this a very solid four. Uh, definitely worth seeing. And I, I may buy it because I would like to learn a little more about it because it, it's such like a, a bizarre movie, you know? Like, it, I, I always like to hear more about how some of these things came about, you know? Yeah, no, it's like I said, I, I enjoyed it. And it's definitely, for any, any of you guys out there, Especially if you're going to watch it on YouTube, it's definitely worth checking out. Especially if you like these kind of left of center, uh, creepy little, Mm -hmm. you know, films that we like that came out in the late 70s, early 80s. It's, I just like it because it's obscure and no one's 
I, I never heard of it before, you know? Yeah. It's, it's cool, you know, and it's definitely has a, there's a lot going on plot wise, you know, there's some very, very interesting, um, you know, points it brings up and like the whole inversion of the final girl I thought was a really cool note in the movie. Uh, but, you know, it's just, I'm not exactly sure how many times I'm going to watch this again, though. That's the thing. That's why I gave it a 3.5. Okay. Interesting, uh, upon its release back in 83, the Santa Cruz Sentinels, Santa Cruz being one of the cities that actually, you know, screened this film, uh, the, uh, the critic J.A. Connor said it's the Tennessee Williams version of Psycho. Oh, wow. Okay. Just interesting little, uh, little, little nod there. Yeah. Um, but he said he didn't like it, though. He said it was the, he said the Tennessee Williams version of Psycho, uh, one of the worst films of 1983. It's just another drive-in, grindhouse, sleazoid mess. Sounds, like, <laughs> sounds perfect to me. That's the thing. That's why yeah. I like this movie. Yeah. This is a grindhouse movie. Uh, much like, you know, I think The Black Room was a great Grindhouse movie. This is a total Grindhouse movie. And uh, I think there's a lot to, to enjoy. Um, but there's other things going on here. And I think uh, there are some interesting risks uh, risks taken. And, you know, um, it's just different kind of movie. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I could see the Tennessee Williams thing because uh, you know his his plays had a lot of uh, latent homosexuality and uh, you know yep. darkness and relationships and things like that. So yeah. Oh, get this! Here's another interesting takeaway: um, both Daryl Hannah and Ali Sheedy auditioned for the role of Julia and didn't get the role. Wow! Yes, Julia Duffy got the role huh. over. Daryl Hannah and Ali Sheedy. Wow, very interesting. Hmm. Daryl Hannah would have been interesting in this movie. Yeah, right? Totally. And Ali Sheedy, she's pretty young back then. But I guess, I mean, you know, Julia Duffy, I think, was supposed to be a little older than him, right? I mean, that's the way I, the way I took it. But I don't Yeah, know. but like, she was still in high school, though. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think I, because she was like the photographer, I think it took me out of my head, took it out of my head that she was still a student like i thought she was like working for like a paper or something but oh, no yeah she... yeah she's like working with a school paper or something i thought that was, that's how i saw it at least totally but uh yeah um you know again we like to bring you some different corners of the horror world from time to time and uh we, we hope you guys enjoy when we do that you know we like to mix it up uh it can be a little more mainstream or a little more you know European or foreign, or it can be these really creepy 70s, 80s oddities like we have uh, given you this evening. And also, uh, thanks everyone for checking out our, uh, our Friday staff picks on Facebook. And, uh, you know, it, maybe, maybe some of those films, if you guys want to hear us talk about them, maybe that might be a good idea for an episode. No, absolutely. And of course, the Christmas season is coming. So, yeah, uh, at some point we will we will revisit some some of the Christmas horrors, from old or new. Uh, if you if you dig back into the uh, the archives, we have covered uh, uh, several of them uh, in the past six years. Uh, so uh, yeah, check those out, and uh, we will see you all next time. All right, Mike. That's right. Take care, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good night. Cheers. Cheers.